Cocoa Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you are serious about your podcast hosting needs, you should check out Cyber Ears. Whether you are a podcaster, a radio host, a musician, a narrator, an audiobook author, or simply a school, church, corporation, or anyone else with an audio recording that needs to be hosted or distributed, you should check out CyberEars.com. Unlimited bandwidth, fast, reliable, and rugged servers with no hidden fees. CyberEars, your audio, your terms. Listen, it's getting closer. Hey, you got your Coco 3 yet? A delicious adventure into the world of retro computing news and information featuring the Tandy Color Computer. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Coco Crew. This is episode nine, and I am John Linville, and I'm here with Neil Blanchard, <laughs> as the French would pronounce it. <laughs> uh, Neil, with his. Uh, his nod to French culture there. Uh, he's a little too close to Quebec to ignore the French. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, and we are the Coco Crew. And so we're back for another episode. And uh, it's getting closer and closer to Coco Fest. And uh, maybe as usual this time of year, there's uh, more and more Coco activity going on. And people trying to get their projects ready. So lots of exciting stuff to cover. Um, we're actually... Uh, uh, on a little bit shorter cycle this month, I think we're going to try to bring in so that we can get the uh, episode 11 in before the Cocoa, uh, which would actually be our 12th episode which, you know, since we started at zero. But then uh, episode 12 will be our Cocoa Fest recap. Next couple of episodes may be uh, on a little bit shorter cycle. Uh, of course, that remains to be seen if we can actually pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> As we sit here, it's uh, the middle of February, and so Cocoa Fest is uh, just about two months away. Uh, Neil, are you are you getting ready for Coco Fest? Oh, I'm I'm getting ready. Definitely excited. Yeah, just had uh, another uh, Glen uh, Glenside Coco Fest preparation call this week. Um, not a lot to report there, but uh, still uh, things tightening down. We're getting ready. Coco Fest is coming, so good stuff. So Neil, you've been working on any cool projects lately? I uh, just finished one actually. I kind of well, not really Coco related, but it was a for a Tandy One Thousand. I did a um, Dallas uh, CMOS battery, I guess, RTC chip rework. So that was kind of a neat project. Very cool stuff. Yeah, so I've been uh, working on a few things myself lately. I uh, did a, um, a, you know, a circuit board design for a uh, converter for to use uh, the Sega Genesis joypads uh, with the Coco 3, uh, which is basically the, the similar design to some other stuff that's out there for using Atari joysticks. Because the Sega Joypad pinouts uh, is uh, largely the same, but uh, the uh, the Genesis Joypads um, have uh, some differences to the electronics, and they can cause problems when you hook them up, depending on how the adapters are designed. 
Uh, so my, my adapter circuit takes care of um, making sure the buttons don't conflict with the keyboard. Uh, and then also uh, my circuit has a, uh, a switching uh, circuit part of it that plugs in that you can actually make use of the extra buttons on the, the Genesis joypad. So anyway, we got uh, I got uh, that design done and, and sent out for circuit boards and got some back. And so I built one, found a few problems in the design, but basically ready for uh, to spin a final version of the board i'm just looking for uh, some some uh, uh looking for a, an enclosure and so that we can do the final board spin and then my buddy neil he take over the business from there are you ready to uh, to build some boards now i am all set i got the solder station all ready to go here looking forward to getting that going i can see this might uh, spawn some uh, programmers into uh, taking advantage of those extra buttons i hope so uh, it's kind of a chicken and egg problem out there uh, so the adapters are useful even if you don't use the extra buttons and even if you don't have a sega genesis joypad it'll still work fine uh, with uh, you know either the sega master system joypad or with just an atari joystick depending on how many buttons you need to use <laughs> so hopefully we can get them out there and uh once there's enough out there maybe there'll be uh some talented young programmers that'll uh take advantage of them or maybe it'll just be me <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh so that's something to look forward to uh, aside from that um still spinning up but i've got my uh cartridge labels uh, designed for farfall to go into our new uh uh, injection molded cartridges and uh, starting to ramp up on collecting parts. So hopefully we'll, there'll be some uh, Farfall carts produced here in the next couple of months. So that's exciting for me. Those look very nice. I saw the picture you posted. I was pretty impressed. So um, along with some Farfall carts, I need to do, uh, I was thinking of doing maybe carts for Xmas Rush. Uh, I might do a cart for, uh, you know, Follow Coco, my Simon clone. Uh, I was thinking that might make a nice card. For it's sure. available already for use with the with Mark's uh, flash cartridge, but uh, uh, some people might want a separate cartridge with a you know, appropriate sticker and all that kind of stuff. So now I can see you uh, get to fulfill the back order on all those Farfall games. I sure hope so. People still want one. I'd like to get them out there. And, uh, I know there's the the cartridge the collectors that got to have them all. I'm, I'm looking at you, Vincent. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple of others. Uh, hopefully uh, everybody will want a Farfall cartridge to go along with all that. Let's see. Well, that kind of rolls us into uh, eBay uh, discussions. Uh, Neil, you done anything cool on eBay lately, uh, selling or buying? Or No, nothing again this month. It's uh, two dry months now. <laughs> yeah, how about yourself? I participated a little in losing the bid on uh, another one of those program pack files. I'm pretty sure Vincent ended up with it. That was a nice... Nice auction too, because it the, not only was the the file, but it of course it was packs, and some of which were uh, on the rare side, like seven card stud. So that one went for a tidy uh, princely sum. <laughs> I was actually winning that auction uh, right up to the last forty seconds. I was winning it at one twenty two. <laughs> oh yeah, and uh, and then that was it. I got outbid. <laughs> uh, were you were you trying to buy me a gift there? <laughs> I, I was. I, I figured it'd be a little peace offering. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shame, shame. I, I'm not really collecting uh, those uh, those pack files, but I'm definitely collecting the cartridges, right? So I figured it would kind of be a win-win. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be great, huh? Oh, well, no, it didn't work out. <laughs> um, 
Although I did, uh, I don't know if we mentioned on the air that there's somebody who's got a Pitfall 2 uh, disc game on eBay that they're asking like, what, 150 bucks or something for. It's kind of a ridiculous price. I've seen that for a while. I've been watching that one since like before last Cocoa Fest. Um, <laughs> and the guy just isn't dropping the price. I, I even sent him a note at once. He said personal thing or he's not going to drop the price or whatever. Who knows? Wow. Well, I did find an auction that, that had a different copy of Pitfall 2 in it. Not as nice, had a little rip in the cover. But it looks to be complete, and it included, uh, well, Larry Bird's one-on-one, which I already have, but it also included Desert Rider, which I don't have. So, And then that one went for about $12, so a lot better deal to be had there, huh? Yeah, I'd say. So other than that, uh, um, there is one little item I think we're going to talk about in the news. Is, uh, somebody's got a, a, a phone adapter or a phone. Well, it's a, it's, it pretends to be a phone line for hooking up two modems together. Guys selling them on eBay. I bought one of those. Well, that's cool. Um, but that's about all the Cocoa-related stuff I've uh, picked up recently. Well, anyway, I think that's uh, enough of a warm-up. Everybody's ready to get on with the real show, so uh, uh, we'll be back in a moment with some announcements. You are listening to the Cocoa Crew Podcast with Neil Blanchard and John Linville. Like how I switched those names around? I'm the original gamer Stevie Stroh, and I'm a Cocoa Nut. And if you're a Cocoa Nut too, then visit I'mACocoaNut.com for all kinds of cool Cocoa links, including my YouTube gaming videos. So visit I'mACocoaNut.com and long live the Cocoa. Back to you, Neil and John. All right. Well, let's move on with some announcements. Uh, we are the Cocoa Crew um, and we are available on Twitter as uh, at Coco Crew Podcast. That's C O C O C R E W P O D C A S T. Listen to me spell. <laughs> we are available on uh, Facebook. We have a group called uh, The Coco Crew Podcast. We are, of course, available on iTunes. Um, so if that is your preferred method for retrieving podcasts, we are available through there. Uh, we are also available through the streaming service Stitcher. Uh, there are at least two or three people in the world who make use of that for <laughs> re- receiving our podcast. So if you're listening to us through Stitcher, hi. Maybe you could recommend us to a few friends. Again, we keep saying we're going to be available through Google Play and their podcast, but I still haven't seen a, that actually materialize. So I'm not really sure what's going on there. But you know, maybe by the time uh, some people get to this, they might be accessing us through Google Play. So, if that's so, then welcome to the show. Uh, we are a member of the Throwback Network. And the Throwback Network, of course, is a collection of retro-themed podcasts. Um, these include uh, technology-related podcasts, as well as other retro-themed stuff, such as uh, the, the Greatest American Hero <laughs> and some other different podcasts, mostly along a retro theme. Along those lines, we are also listed on the Game by Game Podcast Information Hub. That is a, a collection of retro technology uh, podcasts uh, focused on different video game and computing systems, and including some arcade systems uh, from the past. Uh, if you're looking for a similar podcasts and you found us first, you may want to check those guys out. Audio for the Coco Crew podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. Uh, if you have uh, podcast hosting needs or other needs for hosting audio files uh, on the internet, uh, you should check out Cyber Ears, uh, your audio on your terms. Uh, if you'd like to reach the the, uh, the Coco Crew podcast uh, by email, or at least the Coco Crew by email, 
Uh, we have some addresses available. You can reach us as a show podcast at cococrew.org, feedback at cococrew.org. Uh, all of those will reach both Neil and I together. And of course, if you want to reach us separately, I'm available as John at cococrew.org. That's J O H N. And Neil is available, of course, as Neil at cococrew.org. That's N E I L at C O C O C R E W dot O R G. That covers our sort of stock announcements. As uh, we've done for the past few months, I've got a, a few more announcements uh, covering uh, retro computing events that listeners may be interested in attending or supporting. First one uh, on the block here is the uh, Vintage Computing Festival Southeast uh, in 2016, which is uh, April 2nd and 3rd of 2016. Except traditionally, these were numbered uh, events, so 1.0, 2.0, I think this should be 4.0. Uh, I still haven't seen any advertising from them of uh, using that kind of nomenclature. So, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe they're going to call it 4.0 or maybe they're not. But one way or another, it's their event in 2016, which will be held in Roswell, Georgia. I see a week later, I'm still going to cover this, uh, this Walls All Games Mart, which is actually across the pond in the UK uh, in a town called Walls All which uh, I've forgotten exactly where it is. I think, <laughs> was it in the East Midlands or something like that? I believe that's correct. That's a gaming or a retro gaming themed um, event. Uh, I think it's probably mostly a, a swap meet of some sort. Uh, but if you are in that area, you may want to check it out and uh, see what kind of bargains are to be had. Moving on. Uh, if you, uh, the, so the Walls All Games Market is April 9th of 2016. That same weekend, if instead of being in the UK, you happen to be in Brazil, particularly near uh, Rio de Janeiro, there's, um, I'm going to try this with a Spanish-like pronunciation, even though, I've, of course, it's Portuguese, but I believe it's the Segundo Encontro Club Color Rio. I'm sure that pronunciation is terrible, but it's the best I can do. I think it sounded pretty good. <laughs> anyway, it's the second uh, the, the second event of its type, the, the, the boys in Brazil, uh, so to speak, are uh, the Coco-oriented uh, folks down in Brazil are having their answer to Coco Fest, um, having a gathering in Rio. Um, last time they got together, it looked like a, they had a good time and enjoyed each other's company quite a bit and some good retro computing um, interaction. So if you are in Rio or nearby, uh, I would definitely would try to check it out. That is April 9th, 2016. Coming up uh, after that, the, the week after that, of course, is the Vintage Computing Festival East 11, or XI. I guess uh, the, the Super Bowl lost its Roman numerals, and the VCF East seems to have found them. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this event is located at uh, uh, the InfoAge Science Center in Wall, New Jersey, uh, April 15th through 17th. That's three days, uh, 2016. So they the way they do their event, on Friday, they have seminars or, or classes or whatever that are a little bit more in-depth technical uh, for people that want to go to that sort of thing and learn how to repair their old teletype or how to clean, uh, how to use RetroBright on on, on uh, dimming plastic or, or whatever. And then on the 16th and 17th, they have a more show-oriented uh, thing with some uh, uh, talks of a, maybe of a less technical nature, uh, or at least a more general interest nature. And then, of course, they have the computing show as part of it. 
Uh, it's a good event if you're in the New York or New Jersey area or that that part of the United States. I highly recommend you get up to it. Of course, the week after that is the big event in the cocoa world, the one that we have tried to talk about so much that everyone would be nearly sick of it, but not so sick as to not come to it. <laughs> anyway, on uh, April 23rd and 24th of 2016, of course, is the 25th annual last that's with air scare quotes or air quotes the 25th annual last chicago coca fest uh, which is uh, in lombard illinois i highly recommend this event if you are listening to this podcast with any level of interest of all you will probably enjoy uh going to coca fest uh, it's a great event made a lot of good friends there uh, enjoy the time enjoy the uh, the people enjoy the retro uh, computing opportunities there uh it's a great event come out i hope to see everyone there Okay, so finally, I've added one more on the end here, which is not in April. <laughs> I think it's funny, right? We list five events. They're all in April. It's like it, it must be that time of year, you know? It's just like, ooh, let's get together and do some retro computing, and it's April. You know, spring is it's springtime. Ooh. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking you could take the whole month off of April and just uh, you know, retro it right off. <laughs> anyway, so in September – 2016 september 10th and 11th will be the vintage computing uh, computer festival midwest 11 um and that also is being held in the chicago area and uh let's see what is the name of that um, it's held in elk grove village illinois so um never was some talk of moving coco fest out to the same site uh holiday inn at elk grove village there was yeah there was some talk of that i was talking to jason who uh runs the event yeah so we almost you know i think originally we followed the vcf midwest uh folks to to lombard uh to uh to where we are now uh for coca fest and then uh, they ended up there was a, a little mix-up when that changed hands and uh, that's the, the heron point convention center in lombard illinois that changed hands and there was some talk uh or some it became difficult to arrange some stuff, or at least maybe there was a temporal at the right time or something. Anyway, the VCF folks ended up moving out to this Elk Grove Village site, so that's where they are. But anyway, it seemed like a great bunch of guys as they've been joining us for Coca Fest for the past couple of years, and at least uh, one day or two, they, they'll come out and uh, enjoy the auction and uh, walk around and and uh, just come be uh, compatriots with us. Uh, so. Uh, like to see their event be successful. Uh, I think Neil may have gone to this one last year. Is that correct, Neil? I did. I went last year. It was uh, it was really. I had a good time. I'm going to try to make it out there again this year. And cool. So uh, so anyway, originally I'd added uh, uh, all these uh, event announcements uh, when I noticed they were all in April. It was kind of like a joke for me. But. <laughs> but uh, so I figured I'd be dropping them all after Coca Fest, but uh, at least this one I think we'll keep this one around, and then we'll see what else shows up. Um, maybe there'll be more events over the uh, over the year. So I think that covers our announcements for this month. I hope everyone's still uh, enjoying the show, and we'll stay tuned through another little break. Now, if there is any dedicated group of old computer users, it is certainly the people who still love their cocoa, the Tandy Color Computer. And now we're back with some news. Uh, we had tried to uh, do the recording on a little bit shorter schedule this time because we've been feeling overwhelmed with the news, and you guys still managed to push out <laughs> a lot of extra news items. So we feel like the, the show is dominated by uh, covering news stuff, um, but maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. What do you think, Neil? 
Absolutely. And uh, as we're recording this, love is in the air because it's Valentine's Day, <laughs> and that's definitely cocoa. Yeah, cocoa love. Lots of cocoa love to be had here, I think. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, the um, the first item uh, is um, we got an email uh, about a month ago on the list from Boise. And uh, so if it isn't clear to everyone, uh, there's this project. Uh, this is about the pricing for cartridge case. Um, so if it isn't clear to everyone, Boise and me, John Linville, and Mike Rowan uh, went together to invest on producing injection-molded cartridge cases for ROM pack-style cartridges for the Cocoa. Um, and so we are now trying to sell these. Uh, I, of course, wanted them mostly so that I could produce uh, some uh, some games for production, but uh, they're available if you want to do something. If you want to compete with me, so to speak, on that, I I don't really. I welcome the competition. I'm happy to have the opportunity to buy other people's games. Um, if you want to compete with me, or if you want to do your own projects and put them in a cartridge case, um, if you want to produce um, hardware uh, extensions for the Cocoa that would fit inside a a, uh, a ROM pack size case, um, this is your opportunity to get them. Uh, for the hardware guys, you might have to cut some holes or or whatever in them, but still better than starting with nothing i think um my opinion these are nicer than 3d printed for most cases because they're just such a nice finish and they're smooth and they're strong and uh you know a lot of stuff you get this 3d printed you know i can if i squeeze it hard enough in my hands it'll break <laughs> and it kind of has a, a rough corrugated kind of feel to the outside or whatever anyway i'm not a fan of 3d printing maybe you can tell uh, it is handy to have 3D printing for certain things, but for something like this, where you want to produce a lot of stuff that's going to, you know, uh, all be the same size or whatever, I much prefer the uh, the injection molded stuff. I was just going to say, uh, not only uh, you know are the factory professionally looking, but uh, they're ready to go. So if you're you know designing a game and you want to get you know 10, 20 copies out, you know, even more than that, they're, they're ready to roll. So you're not waiting for a 3D printer to churn through and uh, make up different cases. Yep. So anyway, Boise sent out the announcement for what the pricing is. Uh, so uh, pricing is as follows. He's got uh, quantity 1 to 24 for $15 a unit plus shipping. If you want to buy 25 to 99, that drops to $12 a unit. And if you want to buy $100 or more, it is $10 a unit. And if you contact Boise, uh, it's Coco at ToughMac.com, uh, he'll uh, arrange uh, for either he or Mike or myself to supply you with the cartridges. So anyway, so that's what we got right now is the email. We might have a, uh, we might get a website of some sort to handling that in the future. We're not there yet. Hey, we're Coco guys, uh, <laughs> not DevOps people. <laughs> Lots of ways to get a hold of you guys if anybody it's wants. It's pretty easy. And if you want to reach me or, you know, or send to CocoCrew.org, uh, I think uh, if you get with you can reach me that way, and that'll be good enough. Uh, I'll direct you appropriately. Um, anyway, so the Super Pack uh, cartridge case is available. I think they're really nice, uh, particularly if you want to make ROM cartridges. So other, other things you might want to make, they might require a little work to be useful, but, you know, your mileage may vary on that. But if you want to build ROM cartridges, this is the way to go. <laughs> all right. Uh, and I'm not biased at all. <laughs> And hey, hopefully this uh, spawns more games. Yes, it would be great to have more homebrew uh, 
development in the Cocoa community. So anyway, if you want to do that, if you want to build uh, your own games or using these cartridges, uh, you're probably going to want to make uh, adhesive labels to stick on them. And in some cases, uh, you may want to produce uh, circuit boards to fit inside them. And so uh, if you do that, of course, the, 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 there's physical constraints uh, involved with making that look right or whatever. And so wouldn't it be helpful to have mechanical drawings to help you with that? Those are available. Uh, I have uh, put them out in a couple of ways. I think they're available through the Facebook page. The link in the show notes will take you to uh, tandycoco.com uh, topic for them. Uh, and I think I send, put them up uh, on the, uh, the multimedia FTP site as well. I'm not sure if they ever made it out of the incoming directory. Uh, there are templates there to help you size and, and position the label uh, and gives you the outlines of what uh, circuit board uh, would need to be able to fit into the case. And so there you have it. What format are those uh, are the drawings in? Is it just like a, is it a picture file, a PDF? Uh... I think they're PDFs. So the template label is PDF. I think there's a zip file with the PCB mechanical drawings in there. I think that contains a PDF as well. Oh, that's, that's great. Okay, so moving on to the next item. From Tony Capolini, he posts a, a design for the 8080 and 6800 from Microsoft. He posts a link to a PDF from the Living Computer Museum, uh, org, which I guess that's Paul Allen's uh, project, isn't it? Living Computer Museum. Um, anyway, it's a, a document that talks a bit about, which it reads a bit more like maybe a, an early sales document. Um but it talks a bit about the design of um, the Microsoft Basic interpreters uh, for the 8080 and the 6800, and and a little bit about performance differences and that sort of stuff. It even has some pricing information for back in the day if you wanted to, to buy them on paper tape <laughs> or uh, full size single density diskettes uh, <laughs> for CPM, that sort of thing. Um, Anyway, it's kind of an interesting little look at the history of Microsoft Basic. So you might want to take a look. The link will be in the show notes. Moving up, so we have a link for uh, Java for the TRS-80 Cocoa. Uh, and you say, excuse me, what? <laughs> so I was just thinking the same thing. <laughs> um, so this fellow, I don't know him, Mike Cohn, uh, K-O-H-N or Kern, uh, he's posted... Uh, a project. Now, I'm not sure. I remember there was a project like this years ago that ended up spawning a little bit of a fight on the, on the Cocoa mailing list uh, that I was involved with. Um, but uh, uh, basically, it's a it's it's a, a tool that takes Java bytecode and uh, which is basically binaries produced by the Java compiler, and then sort of recompiles them. Uh, for different processors, he's got a number of processors supported, but among those is the uh, 6809 that's on the Cocoa, and then maybe he's got some, you know, system library type stuff to to support the the graphics output on the Cocoa and that sort of thing. He has a demo video, seems to show uh, drawing a a Mandelbrot set or something along those lines. Uh, it's doing some sort of graphics, it's got like a little bounce the ball around game or something. Now, if you're going to try to port uh, your your uh, day trading application written in Java or whatever with you know modern web stuff in it, it's almost certainly not going to run. So this is where you get into the distinction of what exactly is Java and Java's 
a language in and of itself. There's the the bytecode that goes along with the language and it runs on the the Java virtual machine. Um, and there's a lot of so there's a lot of little bits called Java. Uh, in this case, you you have something that is interpreting um, uh, the bytecodes produced by the Java compiler. Uh, which means you might be able to use, there are other languages that produce Java bytecodes. You might be able to use those other languages to produce code that could run on a Cocoa. But anyway, it's a neat little project, especially if you're a language geek or especially a Java language geek. You might want to take a look at this. The link is in the show notes. So any questions, Neil? <laughs> I, I mean, even though it sounds a little basic, I mean, like you said, you're not going to run the, the high-end Java applets, but it's still going to add a lot of functionality to the Cocoa. Well, right. It's not, this is not really a tool, in my opinion, for running code that's been written for somewhere else, the way maybe a C compiler might would be. Right. Um, but this might be a cool tool if you really like writing code in Java and you really want to write something for the Cocoa, this might be an interesting way to combine those two and produce something in Java for the Cocoa. Oh, that's great. Anyway, so the next item... This is a link to the website for PC World, uh, which of course is a, a paper magazine. Uh, I guess it's, I guess they still are a paper magazine. It used to be a paper magazine <laughs> anyway. I don't know if they still are, but uh, they have a, an article there. This old tech TRS-80 MC10 micro color computer lives to play again. So we talked about the MC10 quite a bit uh, in the previous episode, uh, and because I was uh, doing a, a retro challenge project with that. During that time frame, this so this article came out. This is from uh, Benj Edwards, B-E-N-J Edwards. Was not quite sure I know. I don't think I know Benj that well, but I, I'm pretty sure I've seen his name associated with some retro stuff uh, here and there. Anyway, so he does a, a little bit of a mini teardown on the uh, MC10 and talks a bit about it. Uh, so, especially if you're an MC10 fan. Or conversely, if you don't know much about the MC10 at all, you might be particularly interested uh, in uh, in checking out this link in the show notes. Okay, so moving on, all right, we have an article uh, or a post, I guess, and he titled it "Optimization Inside the Mind of a Madman." <laughs> <laughs> so, so Lee's been working on this game called Bouncy Ball that. Uh, I think he was maybe inspired by a, a modern game for like a phone or something. And he, he said he kind of hooked it a bit to Xmas Rush saying that the ball was trying to retrieve Christmas trees that <laughs> the snowmen had squirreled away in their hideout. <laughs> um, but I, I guess he'd been writing um, uh, maybe in basic. Uh, no, I guess he was writing it in C, right? He was writing it in, uh, or uh, CMOC. Um and uh, wasn't getting quite the performance he wanted. And so he turned to Simon Jonasson, uh, who uh, we've mentioned many times, is someone who does a lot of demo-style coding for the Coco, and uh, asked him to help him uh, do some optimization on his uh, rendering routines. And um, he was able to take it from a, a 15 frame per second uh, rendering in C, uh, which I think that was even with the double speed poke, uh, up to a 50 frame per second, which I think was even without the double speed poke in assembly. So that's pretty good performance. Anyway, it's uh, he talks some about some of the optimizations they did, and he's got a lot of code examples and whatever. It's pretty thick on technical details, which some people will love and some people won't. 
But if you're the kind of person that loves that sort of thing, you probably want to check it out. What do you think, it, Neil? It just goes to show the power of assembly. It's very optimized. Well, it definitely can be. I mean, it's you can write crappy assembly code and, and really good C code, uh, you know, across at some point. But you definitely can get the exact job you want done in assembly, and quite often that leads to much better performance. Moving on. Okay, so a little bit of a negative note here. <laughs> um, we see this once in a while on the uh, in the color computer communities. And I'm not really sure what happens if people just get overwhelmed maybe with the things happening in their personal lives and then the cocoa uh, stuff maybe gets a little negative too and it's just the easiest thing to drop or, or whatever. But uh, so we get a note from Bill Pierce to the uh, the color computer group on Facebook. Uh, he says, I bid you all farewell, dot, 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 why? And he complains about people making some sarcastic remarks about Nitrous 9 and VCC. I think both of those are things that Bill, Bill takes a personal interest in. Uh, he takes a couple of shots of, the, of his own, but then he basically says that he's leaving the Facebook group and uh, talk to you on the mailing list or something like that. It's really, I think it's maybe the first time I've seen somebody complain about the Facebook group and, and prefer the mailing list. I definitely have seen people say, I hate the mailing list and I'm going to go to the Facebook. I don't know. You know, these things, we're all people and people can be funny things sometimes. I think that's sort of where this falls is that sometimes people get frustrated with each other and and uh, people don't always behave as nice as they should to each other. And then so sometimes somebody, their last resort is to kind of make a little bit of a scene about uh, how they're being, uh, they feel like people are being mistreated or whatever. And so we've seen this once in a while. Uh, I've since seen Bill, I don't think I've seen him on the Facebook group since then, but maybe I have. Definitely seen him in the mailing list. He's still part of the community. Um, so hopefully things will work out. Maybe, um, Bill will feel the love a little more. <laughs> um, maybe find his way back to Facebook once in a while. It's hard to say. The, the link is in the show notes if you want to see the discussion. I guess it's just airing a little dirty laundry. I find that that's uh, often the best way to uh, to not let it build up is to just discuss these things and get them out. So, Bill, I'm sorry you had a bad experience with the Facebook group. Um, like I said, I know people have had the opposite experience. Let's just all find the, the way to communicate that we like and uh, stick with it and uh, stick with each other because we're the only crazy people out here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I'm glad to see that Bill has not left the Coco community. You know, he's still in the, on the mailing list. So that's great. Yep, definitely. Okay. So what is the next item? Let's see. Oh yes. The uh, Ed Snyder has produced a clone of uh, the computerware composite video board for Coco 2s. So this whole convert the video output to, to composite video is not a new thing. It goes way back and computerware had a, had a board that would do that back in the past that basically you pop out your 6847 video display generator and plug it into the board back in where the VDG had gone. And, uh, and then you could tap the uh, composite video off of there. And so uh, uh, Ed has produced a clone of that sounds like he might make that available. Uh, hopefully that's in addition to the um, uh, composite video solutions he's been offering. sounds like this won't work with the Coco One primarily because of just the mechanical, you know, the shape of the board and the position of the VDG on the, the original motherboard. Um, 
There's some, uh, Ed has uh, got the actual RCA connectors uh, soldered down on the board, and there's some discussion about, well, what if you didn't have those and you just had a cable that you could run to the outside? Uh, I guess the, the RCA connectors are part of the interference problem. I don't know. We'll see, but it's nice to have as many options for uh, composite video available as possible um, because some people like one thing and some people like another. <laughs> what do you like, Neil? It's true. Uh, well, I've always been a fan of composites, so uh, you know I'm looking forward to this. And uh, you know, yeah. as, as for the RCA cables, I mean, any analog source, if you get a good quality cable, I find it gets rid of most of the noise, if if not all of it, on the screen. So yeah, should help that out. All right. Well, let's move on. So, uh, so Paul Thayer has been working on a game that he calls Cave Hunter, which uh, I think maybe has created some confusion. Uh, with some other similarly named games or whatever. So um, at this point, uh, you know, it may be impossible to produce a new game with a completely new name that doesn't conflict at all with anything else. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But anyway, he's posted a video uh, that shows uh, the play of of Cave Hunter, or at least the progress he's made so far. Uh, So if you want to check it out, uh, you should check the link in the show notes. It's great to have new Coco 3 games coming um, and, uh, you know, fun stuff to play. Uh, just cool to have it out there. Uh, so, Paul, great work, and I'm glad you're sharing the uh, progress with us uh, in ways we can take a look. I remember when Paul posted the uh, title screen of that game, I couldn't get over the graphics. I, I swear it looks 16-bit. It does look pretty good. You know, it makes good use of the, uh, the Coco 3's video capabilities. All right, well, moving on. Uh, so, Brian White apparently has an obsession for the CGP 115, <laughs> which uh, if you're familiar or if you're not familiar, the CGP 115 was a, a fairly small, uh, it's a plotter, which, you know, it's kind of, kind of like a printer, except it actually, instead of doing a, a scan, it's kind of like a plotter to a printer is kind of like the, the difference between a, 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 a a vector monitor and a raster monitor uh, in a funny sense. So instead of uh, just sending out a sequence of bits as you go across uh, a line, like with a dot matrix printer, or well, the plotter, you say, here, go to this position, put the pin down, now move to this other position, pick the pin up, put a different pin down, move to this other position, that sort of thing. And so the CGP 115 use some little, they almost look like someone took the end of a ballpoint pin and just cut it off uh, at a, a very short <laughs> end. And so it used to be not too hard to find a few of these, but uh, it's become quite a bit harder, I think, over the years. Plus, I guess there's a mechanical problem where there's uh, some plastic gears that break and that sort of thing, so the printer itself stops working. Anyway, uh, Mr. White has uh, produced uh, a lot of information. He's got a Google Doc link. Um, so we've linked to his post that contains this other link and that's available in the show notes, but to tell you how you can, is basically care and feeding for your aging uh, CGP 115. So it uh, might help you repair it can help you find a replacement ink for your pens or possibly can help you find replacement pens or whatever. I'm not sure what other information he has out there, but if you are enamored with the CGP 115, as I suspect Mr. White is, uh, you probably want to go and check out his uh, uh, his compiled research. What do you think, Neil? Do you like the CGP 115? 
I do actually. I think it's a neat little printer. It, it got a very small footprint as well. It is small, so that's kind of cool. I take it Radio Shack is not supporting the uh, the printer anymore. They don't, you know, they don't have parts available. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're gonna find uh, parts of the Radio Shack for the CGP one fifteen anymore. <laughs> Hard enough to find a Radio Shack anymore. Yeah, that's true. Uh, all right. Anyway, uh, moving on. The next item is that it's not clearly Coco related, but I'll explain. So the Bug Book Computer Museum is moving to the Computer Museum of America. So basically, this is kind of like a merger announcement is essentially what it amounts to. Um, so Bug Book used to be um, uh, there's one and then maybe a collection of uh, fairly technical uh, hardware related interfacing books uh, available back in the late 70s, I guess. Um, a lot of information at kind of at the chip level. I think it was a lot of a lot of it was sort of in the 8080 or Z80 world. Um, anyway, so it's neat that there's uh, this retro uh, related thing where there's a museum for this that, um, you know, it looks like the fellow who's behind that was maybe getting a little older and wanted to ensure that the legacy of his collection lived on. So we've got Lonnie Mims, uh, who's running the Computer Museum of America down in uh, uh, Roswell, Georgia, uh, which is related back to the BCF Southeast event. Um, anyway, uh, he's apparently helping to take uh, uh, take the benefit of that legacy, I guess, and, and promote it to the future. So that's great. That's not going to disappear. So that's good news. Well, why is it interesting for this podcast? Well, I noticed that along with, I guess, all this bug book stuff, we also had some actual computers uh, that were part of the examples. And included in that is a Mark 8 computer. And um, you know, a Mark 8 computer made as an exact copy of the first Mark 8 made by John Titus, blah, blah, blah. This computer was made by Roy Justice. Uh, Roy was a student of mine at VT in the early 70s blah 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 right so so Roy Justice if you don't know is a, a old Coco guy he used to come to uh, Coco Fest quite a bit and then he had uh, some family illness and uh, kind of stopped coming uh, I keep hoping to see him show up at another Coco Fest Roy if you're out there we miss you we'd love to see you I'd like Go to ahead. meet Roy yeah he's a cool guy he, he made the uh, he made the original uh, Coco 3 VGA adapters We've talked uh, about the, the newer RGB to VGA adapters that, that are coming out uh, based on the uh, design around a uh, an FPGA. But uh, Roy had a, an adapter that uh, I, I've always been happy with how it works, and uh, he's that's been out a while. But anyway, so I th threw this link in there because it mentioned Roy. And honestly, Roy, I miss you, dude. <laughs> Come back to Coco Fest. <laughs> All right, so moving on to the next news item. Um, so this is what I mentioned on the talking about eBay earlier on, uh, no phone adapters for sale. And so basically, um, what we've got is, uh, somebody has taken, uh, a, uh, it looks like it's designed to be a wall plug for two phone outlets. Like you'd put on the wall on the baseboard or whatever for the old style in the house phones on the inside, instead of just hooking up to uh, the normal phone wiring, Put in a small little circuit that uh, has a looks like a resistor and a capacitor, and then leads for a nine volt battery. And so the notion is that you can plug a nine volt battery into this adapter, 
and it looks enough electrically it looks enough like a, a what's called a POTS or plain old telephone system uh, line so that you can plug two modems into this box and then connect them and then you can communicate over them as if they're you know as if you've called CompuServe or something. Uh, how, how is this useful? Well I mean if you have a you know if you well for one if you're you know, so if you have two boxes that can communicate over serial lines, uh, it doesn't take a great deal of, of technical skill to be able to hook the serial ports up together if they have plain serial ports. But sometimes you have systems where you don't have an exposed serial port, you just have a modem line. Maybe you do have uh, exposed serial ports, but you'd just rather use the modem because you know how that works and you can plug two modems together or, or whatnot. So anyway, this is a way to make use of modems uh, to connect two devices together without a lot of technical, well, basically no technical uh, building or whatever involved. You just plug the things together. Uh, you might need some special settings in your communications firmware uh, or, to, or to tell your modems that, you know, you'd not expect a dial tone, for example, that sort of thing. But most systems, I think, will be able to handle that. Anyway, if you're looking for a way to um, hook two systems up using a modem and you're not quite sure how to do it since you cut the cord to the uh, to the bell station, <laughs> this is your uh, this is your opportunity. Um, this is from I don't know the fellow's name. Somebody called Miller uh, V. Anyway, he does have them available on, on eBay and they're fairly cheap. I think maybe fifteen or twenty dollars, something like that. Uh, so you may want to think about getting them. It's the link to his website in the show notes. I think that's a cool device to have. I mean, uh, you know, not only does it give modems a chance to be used again, but a lot of people don't have, uh, you know, the POTS phone system in their house anymore. The, you know, VoIP phones and cell phones. and It's kind of a thing of the past. Yeah, yeah, but I, I don't know if there's still code. If you're, you know, building, uh, if you build a new place or whatever, do you need to put phone jacks in or whatever? I'm not sure. But a lot of places are not hot, even if they are still there. Uh, so it won't really do you any good to plug them in. <laughs> That's true. So anyway, it's a cool little thing, and maybe somebody can make a good use of it. Okay, another uh, Brazilian link uh, from the CP400 guys. Uh, this one is from uh, <laughs> Juliano Oliveira. Oliveira. Uh, I'm sorry, Juliano, but <laughs> that's my best option, or best uh, attempt at pronouncing it. Anyway, he it looks like what he's done, he's taken, um, uh, so in the microcontroller world, quite often, because microcontrollers have become a hobby, not unlike the uh, old computers of the past, quite often you'll find electrical components that are kind of mounted out onto ample boards that are easier to connect things to for experimenting. And so that's sort of what this is. This is a thumbstick similar to what you'd find on, a, on say, an Xbox controller or a PS4 controller or something. It's uh, on a little board that's been uh, built, to looks to me, to be uh, to make it easier to interface to, say, you know, an Arduino or something like that. And so uh, what he's done is taken and, and taken that little board and run the wires uh, out to a Coco-style joystick that he's plugged into his CP400, which uses the same kind of joysticks as the Coco. And so he's got a little thumbstick that he can then play Zaxxon with. They're presumably could play Farfall or whatever else, too. <laughs> so, you know, it's uh, 
just a cool little thing to do. Not the most complicated project ever, but it's something cool and it's something that people might be able to replicate if they can, if they speak Portuguese or if they can get past the, uh, uh, you know, if they can make out the the Google Translate, <laughs> um, and uh, they probably can figure out and do and replicate the project. So that'd be a cool thing, right? Oh, it definitely. It's another source for a joystick. Oh, there you go. So very cool stuff. Thanks for sharing, Juliano. And uh, see a lot of cool stuff come out of that Club Color Brazil uh, group on the Facebook. So if only I could pronounce it. Pronounce it. <laughs> All right. So here's another one. The next item. Uh, a lot of seen a lot of retro news about this one. It might be a little bit of a publicity stunt <laughs> on the top of this uh, Usborn Children's Books, which I think maybe they have more of a UK presence. I'm not really sure. But so I guess they've got a couple of new computer books oriented towards children uh, lift the flap computers and coding book and coding for beginners using scratch scratch of course is a programming environment designed for children and uh, so they've got a couple of those for sale and then as part of that they have taken some uh, similarly themed books from the 80s and they've made those available for free download and there's a lot of them uh, so they've got programming tricks and skills, machine code for beginners, introduction to computer programming, basic for beginners, practical things to do with a microcomputer. They've got a bunch that are like games, like computer battle games, computer space games, probably a dozen, give or take, maybe a little more books available now that you can download free of charge, PDF, I guess. Actually, I'm not sure what the format is. It might be EPUB or something like that, but you can get them for free. Uh, if that sounds interesting to you, there's a link in the show notes, and uh, you should download them and take a read. What do you think, Neil? You going to be downloading these books? I'll check it out. Sounds a good resource for sure. <laughs> yeah, I think, like I said, they, yeah, I think they were UK based, so they might focus a bit more heavily on the Spectrum and uh, maybe some other systems that were more popular over there. Some of it's generic. And anyway, so here's another one from Bill Pierce. Uh, like I said, uh, had a. a, a a news item from him earlier where he's uh, a bit upset with the Facebook group, but uh, now he's uh, still posting to the mailing list, so we still have him in the community, so that's great. He's got um, another M-Shell update. It seems like we've had M-Shell updates featured in the news items for a couple of releases now, so I guess he's pretty active on this M-Shell stuff. I don't really use it. I don't know a lot about it. I think it's like a file manager. It seems to get good press from other people, um, so I'm glad to see that it's being updated. Do you use M-Shell, Neil? No, I keep meaning to. I want to. I got to get an OS nine system back up and running. Yeah, and, uh, it's been a while. It seems like a kind of a GUI interface, is it not? I think it is. Uh, I don't know if it's really GUI or it's more what like some people might call TUI, which is you know, a text user interface. You know, where it's right, you know, positional text or something like that. But I'm not really sure. I don't know. Haven't used it. Um, it sounds like it makes uh, OS nine a lot easier to use. You know, so somebody's not yeah. as savvy with it. Yeah, it sounds like that's a thing that a lot of people complain about OS 9, so <laughs> it might be a great thing to check out. Anyway, moving on. All right, so here's a two in a row from Glenn Vandenbigler, who runs the the Coco Lounge. And so uh, you'll see why there's two in a row in a minute. Because <laughs> your blog posts, and the first one says, Frozen Assets, comma, rent, comma, new digs, comma, and winding down the Coco Lounge store. Glenn's had some problems with his landlord, I guess, or in the space that he's living in. And uh, he's had a lot of uh, tales of woe in his blogs for a while. And so uh, so he posts this and um, couldn't help but think that, that he was sort of giving 
kiss goodbye on the cocoa stuff. And so I'd originally included this because, and then like the next day, he posted the next link, which was, no, the lounge is moving, not closing. <laughs> so <laughs> big difference uh, there. Yeah, it is a big difference. So I guess he's, he's moving house. He's going to have more room there, but he doesn't want to move everything. So he's maybe trying to sell some stuff off and not collect new cocoa stuff for a while. But I think he still intends to sell some cocoa stuff uh, along the way. And especially once he gets into the new place. Uh, so there you go. Uh, particularly if you saw the first one and not the second one, now you should know that uh, Glenn's store is still going to be there. And, you know, that's the news. <laughs> He's just, he might be a little slow on some stuff and there might be some sales along the way. And it's definitely a reassuring if anybody, uh, you know, put a deposit on a waiting list, like say for a Coco three or uh, you know, I know he's got a waiting list for certain products. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely true. So, uh, so good news there. Okay. Moving on. So the retro challenge we mentioned retro challenge last week. I was a participant. I pointed out that we had um, a number of Coco people involved this time around uh, team Coco. I called them, you know, so it's a, a good event. Now we have the winners. Uh, I ha- unfortunately I'm not among them, <laughs> but you know, like you say, the, the it's a uh, retro challenge is kind of like global thermonuclear war. Or the only winning move is not to play <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> anyway, along those lines. Um, so two of the four named winners are part of team Coco. Uh, so we've got Brett Gordon who had his uh, networked, um, artillery style game uh which i think he actually called global global thermal so he actually it is a neat project he used the uh, um the drive wire uh servers networking capabilities uh to communicate through an irc server uh, irc internet relay chat is a it's a a protocol that's used for people to actually just talk to each other <laughs> on the internet but he, so his his uh, uh, games uh, the talk over this networking stuff to through an IRC server to coordinate uh, who hit what and who did what damage and that sort of thing. <laughs> so pretty cool stuff. Congratulations to Brett being named one of the winners. Another one of the four winners. So two of the four winners are Coco people. This, this one being Jim Gary. We mentioned Jim a lot on the on the podcast. He does a lot of cool basic uh, work, basic as in the language. Um, he does a lot of porting uh, between the MC10 and the Coco, or between other systems and either the MC10 or the Coco, and then usually from one to the other. So it's cool. Jim uh, got listed as one of the winners this time. I don't think it was one of, a particular one of his games. I think it was just his entire effort because he he's very prolific and produces a lot of games. Um, so very cool stuff. Congratulations to Brett and Jim and, of course, to Tom Radna and uh, Masswork. I'm not sure who that is. Um, uh, actually, Masswork, uh, could, he did uh, some stuff related to the, the – was it the Kyocera laptop style machines of which includes uh, the model 100 model 102. So it it was a very tandy uh, retro challenge this time (laughs) in a number of ways. Um, But anyway, so that's it. Uh, The retro challenge event was over for January. Previously, the the next event would have been in July, but uh, they're moving to a different schedule. And so I think the next event now is going to be in October and then followed by in April in October of 2017 and, and on from there. Anyway, so congratulations all. Okay, next item. 
So CGA to VGA video converter kit. Uh, so this is from Micro B Technology. So I guess the Micro B was a retro computer from back in the 80s. I think Z80 based. It seems to have been centered in the uh, the southern hemisphere, I guess, around Australia. There was some effort to produce a, a, a reproduction Micro B, I guess, last year or two. And that group, partly, I guess, to help fund itself, also produced this um, video scaler adapter or whatever. I think it's an... I think it's an, a circuit that plugs into a, a kind of off-the-shelf video scalar board called the GBS 8200. Um, anyway, I mentioned it because amongst not only does it support the Micro B, but it also supports a number of machines, including the Amiga and the Tandy Coco 3. And they even will sell you a pre-made cable for the Coco 3. So in that sense, it's a Coco 3 product. It sells for about $95. Uh, I guess those are Australian dollars. Not really sure where those uh, fall into the uh, U.S. Canadian spectrum, but <laughs> um, so roughly a hundred bucks, uh, you could get an adapter that would be comparable to the RGB to VGA adapters that we've mentioned before, or even comparable to Roy's adapter, I guess. Have you ever tried one of these? Have you, Neil? No, I haven't, but I was checking it out, and uh, it's kind of neat that it's a dual purpose. So if you do have an Amiga or you know a platform that supports it, yeah, it's always nice to have systems that uh, support more than one machine. Okay, so moving on, Darren Atkinson a few months back had a project. I think we mentioned it in our in uh, I saw it in the show notes for one of our earlier episodes. <laughs> so I know we mentioned it uh, called the MC11. And so basically, what that was was uh, a project inspired by I guess by the MC10. Yeah, I guess the 68HC11, which is a later processor in that microcontroller line from Motorola. So basically, it produces a system similar to the MC10 based around a 68HC11. I guess Kip Kuhn sent something to the mailing list saying, hey, Darren, you know, what about that MC11 project? How's that going? And so uh, so then, unfortunately, Darren uh, replied with, uh, he says, the Magic 8 boss says, Outlook not so good. So <laughs> not a lot of details there, but it sounds like that project has um, maybe fallen by the wayside. Uh, so if you're waiting for a 68HC11-based MC10, uh, you better either start designing it yourself or give it up. <laughs> so, sorry to hear that. In case anybody's wondering, Darren Atkinson is the guy behind the Coco STC. Yep, that's true. He's also behind the MCX128. Uh, he actually also designed a floppy controller for the MC10 that I think a couple people have produced. <laughs> so, oh, I didn't know about that. Yeah. So Darren's a, a neat guy, uh, done some cool designs. Anyway, it looks like the MC11 is not going to be one of them, at least not anytime soon. All right, moving on. Chris Martin, I have finally finished my BMP to Semigraphics 24 mode converter. Uh, of course, Semigraphics 24 is one of those video modes that the Coco can do, Coco 1 and 2 or the Dragon can do that's uh, arises out of the combination of the 6847 video display generator and the 6883 sam uh, and it gives you um, a 64 pixel wide by 192 lines tall uh image in as nine colors uh, so are the uh, red green yellow blue buff cyan magenta orange and black and with a few restrictions on placement of colors <laughs> I think we've documented that elsewhere. Anyway, Chris has produced a converter. It looks like he's getting pretty good results uh, with some pictures. It kind of depends on your expectations, I guess. That's, I always think I, I have 
done some similar projects and I say, Oh, wow, that looks really good. And I bring my wife in and say, what do you think of that? And I say, well, keep trying. It'll get better. <laughs> <laughs> they look pretty good to me. Uh, my wife or kids might not be as impressed. Uh, I don't know if Chris is in that same boat or not. I think they look good to us because, uh, you know, we know the, the hardware limitations, right? So we know what to expect from the machine. That's right. So yeah. anyway, it's always cool to see somebody messing around. It's not a game. Uh, but it's kind of like a utility you could do. That's one thing, even if it's not a game, if you can show some pictures on your Coco, uh, that sometimes will answer the, those annoying friends or relatives and say, yeah, but what do you do with it? So, well, I put up pictures on it to entertain myself. It, that seems to <laughs> satisfy people asking questions. <laughs> so Yeah, it didn't hurt the pictures that Chris was using too, uh, to demo the program. Some of them were hot chicks, right? <laughs> yeah, a lot of 80s, so, uh, you know, 80s babes. And some 80s stuff, too. That's right. Yeah. He actually has made his converter available, uh, I think. Uh, so if you look through the links in the show notes, I think you might be able to find the converter. Uh, I'm not sure if he's got his own player or if he's just uh, using uh, the uh, the display program from, from Robert Galt's uh, converter uh, that, that's been around for a while. Anyway, so there you go. Uh, if you want to show some some pictures on your cocoa and and uh, as many colors as the cocoa can show without special tricks at least, um, here's an option for you. All right, next item. Okay, Pop Star Pilot blog chapter twenty four from our friend Nick Morentis. So Nick has been working on this cocoa three game for a while. And he's done some cool stuff. He's got a few tricks here and there for status board on, on the screen and for doing some background tricks and, and um, raster bars or whatever. He did post um, he posted an update showing, uh, well, he's got a video that shows some gameplay and you just go around and shoot these balloons and you get some sound effects. Uh, it's pretty cool. Uh, we're still waiting to see the actual game release. Um, hey, it looks cool. Uh, I'm going to uh, defer to Neil as uh, our game reviewer as to how things look like they're coming along, uh, but it looks pretty good to me. What do you think, Neil? Oh, it looks great, and I do respect he's taking his time with this game, too, putting all the little polishes on it, finishing touches. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it, and uh, you can definitely cool. count on a review on it when it's done, because I will be doing a Games Corner review on it for sure. <laughs> awesome. Okay, so our next two items uh, actually both come from John Strong. And so John posted a, a picture on the Coco, um, the TRS-80 color computer Facebook game arrived yesterday. And so some of us had already heard of John's Bomb Squad game. Maybe some others hadn't. Um, so in the replies to that, he, he posted uh, some screenshots of the game in action. It strongly appears to be a Minesweeper style of game, certainly inspired by Minesweeper. Hopefully that is getting closer to reality. Uh, John is uh, uh, collecting parts, and so hopefully that means he's going to be building some boards. It sounds like uh, he's sounds like he thinks he's going to uh, or he's intending to 3D print some cases. So uh, he's rejecting our injection molded cases, <laughs> but which is fine if uh, if he likes that solution and uh, more power to him. It sounds like he uh, he has a reason to that though. There's a method to his madness. I just don't know what it what it is. Yeah, he said something about there's things you can't do with the injection molded cases or something like that. We'll see. Maybe he's going to do something special, put LEDs on the case or something like that. Anyway, so be looking for a Minesweeper style game called Bomb Squad from John Strong. Hopefully that'll show up at 
at Cocoa Fest, if not before. Okay, so the next item, also from John Strong. John Strong has been doing some 3D printing for a while, and he's been doing 3D printed cases for the Cocoa SDC. So there's another item, which oddly enough is also from Darren Atkinson, <laughs> that's out in the in the wild that has uh, typically been just released as a bare board, uh, or not a bare board, but board a populated board, but not a not enclosed. Uh, so John is working on an enclosure for the MCX-128, which is the memory expansion for the MC-10. I think we just mentioned it. <laughs> it looks like there'll be options uh, for putting clothing on your MC-10 expansion there, your MCX-128. Looks pretty good to me. I think we had a news item last time uh, where someone, uh, was a Jim Gary, I think, had put uh, some clothes on his uh, using a sensor from a, an alarm company or something. So uh, <laughs> maybe you uh, have to resort to that. So very cool, huh? While we're talking about John Strong, I just want to thank him for sending me a really cool birthday gift. Uh, the night of my birthday, I got a random email, and it just said, uh, flash and enjoy. So it's like, well, you, you know, I had uh, curiosity got the best of me, so I had to flash uh, what he sent me. So I put it in a little um, mini flash from Cloud9, and he wrote me a little uh, birthday game. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, it was a, it was a breakout-style game, three levels, and it said uh, first level is happy, the next level is birthday, and the third level is Neil. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I'm jealous. <laughs> John, if you're listening, my birthday is in November, but I'll be happy to, to accept a half-birthday gift in, in May <laughs> Uh, May 19th would be, so uh, <laughs> we'll see what happens, huh? How about that? Very cool. All right, so moving on. This link, I, I think the link here is the one that uh, I took from Daniel Campos uh, posting to the Color Computer Group. I did have the original Clobo Color Brazil uh, link uh, with the Google Translate, but Thankfully, Daniel has done a, a little more, uh, a better English translation than that. So I included Daniel's uh, link here instead. But so, uh, I guess Victor Truco, Truco, I'm not, I'm not sure the pronunciation. So Victor, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. So Victor Truco has produced something that he calls the Expander Multipack Dash Capital B Capital R Extended Plus Blue, <laughs> which is quite the name. But uh, anyway. Basically, what it is is a multi-pack uh, style of of expansion well, cartridge or or backplane, specifically designed to fit the slot of the CP400, which has some mechanical differences from the Coco or the Dragon, but electrically is the same. So, once that's solved, it should fit into you know Cocos and Dragons as well if you are managed to acquire one. But uh, so anyway, a lot of see a lot of people clamoring for a multi-pack uh, on the list from time to time. I think most of them uh, don't really know what they're wishing for. It's more of a <laughs> they're not a, they may not be quite as great as you think they are, but they can be useful. And so uh, anyway, they're like, apparently are a little hard to find on eBay. Sounds like there's a couple of um, replacement options uh, that are in the works, and this is one of them. So. Uh, Victor, very cool. Glad to see it. I hope to see them soon, and I hope you'll make them available outside of Brazil, and uh, I'm sure you'll uh, be able to sell them. So, very cool stuff. All right, so link in the show notes if you want to check that out. All right, moving on. This is a post of the mailing list from Robert Galt. Robert, of course, has been around a, a long time, uh, sort of our benevolent sage of the group, or <laughs> whatever. <laughs> So he posts something, printing from Cocoa 3 Disk Basic to the DriveWire 4 printer. 
Well, that sounds cool. So what's up with that? Well, so so Drivewire, of course, it really started as more of a, a Nitrous 9-based project, and but, uh, you know, it, it doesn't really care what it's talking to on the other end. It just sort of was developed uh, with Drivewire, with the Nitrous 9 uh, drivers in, in mind. And amongst those includes a printer driver for Nitrous 9, and you can... Uh, uh, send stuff through the drivewire port out to the printer, which actually it emulates, I guess, um, uh, certain kind of printers, uh, I guess an Epson printer and does it have a radio shack printer option is available as well. I think so. It, it did at least at one point, maybe it doesn't now. Anyway, you can send, uh, out to sort of an emulated printer that I guess it turns it into postscript or something on your PC. And so that way you can use uh, a printer uh, from your, uh, well, in that case, from your your iOS 9 applications. But in this this case now, you can also, with this little piece of code uh, provided by Mr. Galt, you can use a similar capability from your basic programs. Uh, and I guess he's tested it using HDB DOS and the LList command. But my guess is, is, at least it seems to be intended, that any kind of print number minus two uh, will work. So there you go. If you have a basic program that wants to uh, print, now it probably does not transfer off to, uh, you know, disk basic uh, based machine language programs. They still, they'll be trying to bit bang uh, <laughs> on the actual printer port and that's not going to transfer over to DriveWire. But, you know, if you have stuff written in basic to do that, it looks like it should work. So uh, very cool. Very exciting to see that. What do you think, Neil? I could see that being very handy for even, uh, you know, writing a small basic program to print directory trees. Yep. Yep. That can be very helpful, especially since they just scroll past <laughs> yeah. the Cocoa screen. All right. Well, very awesome. Okay. So this was going to be the, uh, the last item since uh, that's pretty news. Uh, well, Dan, I think we have one more that came in today. This is from Tim Lindner. I guess Tim, maybe Tim works in a print shop of some sort. That's Sounds familiar. I might be making that up. But anyway, he certainly seems to have some amount of printing expertise. And he has produced uh, a reproduction program pack box. For those not familiar, the you know the program packs, the cartridges that plug into the Cocoa, originally they came from Radio Shack in these uh, gray square folded paper boxes. And uh, they tuck in there along with the instruction manual and... All the boxes look the same. Um, they weren't particularly sturdy. And so usually if you find one now, they're kind of beat up and often torn or whatever. So I guess this is a reproduction of those, partly as uh, a way to, to, you know, to rebox the games in your collection. Uh, I suppose if you want to produce new games, new cartridges, uh, our cartridges will fit in the box, I expect. They certainly will fit in the old boxes, so I expect they would fit in the new boxes. So that might be an option. Anyway, it uh, it's a cool reproduction thing. Some collectors will probably appreciate. You know, so way to go, way to go, Tim. Good job. Okay, so our final item. I just I snagged this today on Google Plus. I don't know a lot about it. I'm not even sure if it really works, <laughs> and I don't really know who this person is. It's uh, JML at FRI. JID.net. I had trouble finding a name on that, so I'm not really sure who the person is. But he appears to have taken the Madness in the Minotaur game. He seems to have disassembled the, the 6809 code, and he actually has a, a Git repository available for that. So Git is a source code control system for writing uh, computer programs. 
And then he has a Git repository for an x86 version. And so what appears to have happened is he seems to have taken the 6809 Madness and the Minotaur, disassembled it to some sort of workable source, and then converted the source code to x86 assembly, and then rebuilt it. And he seems to have links for Linux and BSD and Solaris and OS X and even Windows. So... Like I said, I, I just saw this come in today, snagged it for the news item. Um, I may be misinterpreting this, but it looks like cool stuff, so I wanted to get it in. Uh, if you know more about it, please let us know. Uh, send us some feedback. Um, but anyway, there you go. Links in the show notes. And so with that, that covers our news for this month. Uh, and seems like plenty to me. What do you think, Neil? Yeah, got a lot of news this month. Definitely. All right, well... We're going to take a little break, and then we'll be back with some feedback. Hey, John and Neil, Original Gamer, and I wanted to chime in on your topic of homebrew games. I would like to say that I absolutely support this idea. I'm excited that there are still projects. I'm excited about things like Sockmasters, Donkey Kong, Farfall, Christmas Rush, just to name a few. And I would like to go on record to say that I have no problem paying for both digital and physical copies of these games. And I think there's probably two different markets. There's probably the casual gamer who would just like to have them. And then there's the diehard fan who wants to have the nostalgic cartridge. And I think that you could probably appeal to both of those markets. And my suggestion would be for the digital distribution is to make sure your game references your website prominently in the game and let people go there on an honor system and just hit a PayPal link and let them pay for the game as they see fit. And I don't think anywhere between a dollar to five dollars is an unreasonable amount to pay for a digital copy. We pay that price for apps on our phones. And so why wouldn't we pay for that for our Coca? And then there is the hardcore diehard special kind of crazy person like myself who would love to have a cartridge. And I think anywhere between 40 to $60 is absolutely fair price to pay for that cartridge. Not to mention the value of the time that went into creating the game, but just what it takes to actually produce this and the people who make it should be compensated. And I don't think that's an unreasonable price. And hopefully I'm not alone on this opinion. Okay. So we did get a little bit of feedback this month. So I thought we'd cover that. Um, first item comes from Mr. Curtis Boyle. And this is a response to a question about shareware in the Cocoa world in the last episode. He says, there was shareware in the Cocoa world. I remember programs on Delphi slash CompuServe being shareware, uh, parentheses. I even did a few utilities that way for OS9 slash Nitrous9, close parentheses. It has never really taken off in the Cocoa world, though. If I remember correctly, Nick Marentis released Cosmic Ambush's shareware. Not only a couple of people ever contributed any money for it. I know my CC Unzip program got one shareware. <laughs> so so there's your answer. There was some shareware, at least some attempts at shareware. But for whatever reason, never a big hit. I'm not sure. You know, I kind of wonder how much money anyone ever made off of shareware on any platform. There probably were a few that did. But uh, I think shareware payments are kind of like teenage sex where <laughs> <laughs> lots of people talked about it. And most people didn't really do it, that sort of thing. <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh so moving on i had a question uh in the last episode we were talking about the mc10 and it's like uh the mc10 doesn't have a c save m command uh although it does have c load them and exec so you can load uh machine language binaries but you can't save them and i thought that sounded pretty strange um uh, so william astle uh, points out, it says, it turns out that plain color basic on the Cocoa doesn't have C save M either. It's added by extended basic. And so the micro color basic on the MC 10 is 
basically, <laughs> it's essentially uh, just plain color basic, although it does have some bits that that are were added on the Coco by extended basic, some functions and such. But you're basically talking, uh, essentially talking about <laughs> color basic on the MC10, not extended basic. And so whether or not it makes any sense, it at least accounts for why CSAVEM wasn't part of the package. It wasn't, it probably was not intentionally left out so much as just not included. <laughs> at least that wraps up, makes some sense out of it, at least. It makes a little sense. Um, uh, it still seems like a, a questionable decision, but I guess you can yeah. see where you might drop it from something that's supposed to be a client-style device, which was probably the idea for non-extended basic. And then you always wonder if that command was there, would there have been more support for the machine? I mean, uh, On the MC-10, it probably would have made a bigger difference. Um, yeah. I'm not sure. Uh, so here's one that uh, is a, it's a Steve Strobridge uh Trying to be kind, but I, I know he's complaining about me. <laughs> Said the, the, the MC10 segment has given an idea to my suggestion of breaking your tech segments into smaller pieces. Neil will testify that I always say, "Oh yeah, this time the tech segment's going to be short. You know, it'll probably be 15 or 20 minutes." And then by the time I get back to him, I said, "Well, sorry, this time it's 55 minutes, <laughs> <laughs> something like that." It's just it, it's hard to cover. You know, it's hard to cover topics and and uh, cover them reasonably in a short period of time, and also avoid talking so fast that no one understands them. So we'll see. You know, I don't think that there would have been a lot of patience for two or three episodes worth of MC10 technical discussion. I could be wrong. The MC10, I basically wanted to cover it all in one episode, and so it ended up a little longer, maybe than I would have liked. But it is what it is. You know, if uh, there's some people who want to absorb it and maybe just need more time. I think it probably what you have more is either people who are who are uh, happy to have the segments and some people who would prefer not to have the segments. <laughs> and so for the, I'm glad you enjoy them. If you don't want the segments, well, I, I just have to refer you to the uh, the fast forward option on your uh, MP3 player. Um, but Steve, now I understand uh, not everybody. Uh, it's hard to hit the right medium for those uh, segments. Um, I'm trying to feel my way through. We'll see how I do this time uh, talking about uh, uh, the uh, RS-232 pack. Uh, but we'll see. I haven't recorded that yet as I'm recording this. <laughs> what do you think, Neil? Do you, do, you think, um, do you think I should extend the technical segments, uh, make them take longer, more episodes, that sort of thing? Or do you think we're hitting it about right? I think we're hitting about right. I mean, uh, it depends what the topic is, but with the MC10, it makes sense of what you were trying to do is, you know, get it done in one show. Yeah. It's not really as a popular machine as the Coco, right? So Yeah. I mean, the Coco-based segments lasted about seven episodes. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. you could have dragged that out a little further, but it's hard to imagine how much farther you could go. So. Yeah, and there was a lot to cover there, too, so. Yeah. Anyway, so our final uh, uh, feedback item comes from uh, Roland Schweiger. Uh, Rolo, I saw Rolo. I, I, uh, I've heard his name mentioned on the, the Vectrix podcast and uh, maybe some others. So uh, Rolo gets around a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so we, we know you're cheating on us, Rolo, but, uh, you know, we'll welcome you back anyway. <laughs> he still knows a good processor. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Uh, Rolo says, talking about things people should bring along for Coco Fest, you forgot the most important of all. 
they need to bring their dragon slash cocoa multi cartridges <laughs> with a smiley face there. So of course, Rolo is selling uh, multi cartridges, um, and uh, I think we've mentioned those on the podcast before. Uh, you can find them at the World of Dragon Archive dot org or is archive dot world of dragon dot org. I think that's it. So yeah, you definitely should go check those out, and uh, you know, so give Rolo the free plug there. Um, I think every episode I talk a lot and he'll talk some, uh, we're bound to have some uh, stuff we either misspeak or leave out or whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, let us know what we're saying, uh, what else you'd like us to talk about, uh, suggestions for other shows. Feel free to record your own audio feedback. Uh, we haven't gotten any of those yet. I'd love to get one. Um, or, you know, like I said, send us an email or contact us on the Facebook group, whatever. Uh, we are happy to have the feedback. Um, like I said, we, we do the shows uh, for the audience, so it's love to hear. We love to hear from the audience to know that they're listening to the shows. <laughs> so let us hear from you. Uh, and, again, that's uh, feedback at CocoCrew.org or John at CocoCrew.org or Neil at CocoCrew.org. Uh, you know, let us hear from you. Okay, but why Tandy Computers? In a word, quality. We do it all from custom designed semiconductors to the finished product. Tandy business computers are manufactured in our own USA plants. We test and retest and test again to ensure one of the highest standards of quality in the industry. And Radio Shack provides total service and support. I'm convinced. Tandy Computers at Radio Shack Computer Centers. In business, for business. All right. Um... We are going to continue what has become our new tradition of uh, having a host discussion topic. Uh, these can be fun little debates. Uh, sometimes maybe we should just include the debate over the host discussion topic in as a segment of the show. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, this time, uh, I think what we've settled on uh, is uh, what I have, uh, what I've got in the show notes, or at least right now, is a topic listed as what about printers as a question mark. And so what I mean by that is, you know, printers obviously are part of the retro landscape. They're interesting old machines, most of which have essentially zero value, almost a negative value in the sense that people are probably on that verge of paying you to take it if they have an old printer laying around. <laughs> and so the question is, should you take it? What will you do with it? What good is it? Are they worth preserving? All that sort of thing. Um, I probably have a little bit to add there, but I, I think I've talked enough for now. I'm going to uh, let Neil give you some thoughts on what he thinks about printers. So what do you think, Neil? Well, I've, I've definitely always liked old printers and, uh, I'm going to be honest with everybody here. I've, I've lost it over a CGP 220 for the longest time. I used to have one when I was, uh, you know, back in the day with, you know, my first Coco setup, that was a printer I used mainly that. And I had a DMP 105. For, just for doing uh, black and white copies of things. And uh, the problem I find with old printers is uh, you can't find ink or uh, ribbons for a lot of them now. And I think that's probably does hurt the value somewhat of these printers you see on eBay or, you know, at flea markets and so on. Yeah, that is definitely one of the biggest problems, I think, with old printers is, uh, you know, you just can't, you know, like the dot matrix ones, you basically can't find the ribbons at all. Um, you know, like I've, I got a DMP 100 not that long ago, maybe a year ago. Um, 
which was completely out of nostalgia because that's what I had as a kid. And uh, you just can't find <laughs> ribbons for that at all. And and I've tried, you know, they, there were similar printers in terms of they were the same mechanism uh, sold and, and packaged for the Commodores and, and some other machines. And so I've tried to, tracking those down and looking for printers uh, for ribbons based on those because even though they're not quite the same in terms of software, you know, they use the same mechanisms and the same ribbons and stuff. And, you know, on those, I, I did track down some that claimed to be compatible and then they turned out to be completely different. <laughs> you know, so I don't, I don't know what the deal was. It might be the ribbon itself might be compatible, cut it and take it off the spools and replace it. That might work, but, but in terms of the mechanism, that wasn't going to work. You yeah. mentioned the CGP 20, you know, that, that seemed like a cool printer back in the day could definitely produce some pretty output. Um, you could find uh, some refill ink stuff there. I'm not sure how well any of that worked. I know the printer cartridges kind of had a sort of a, a rubber seal uh, that had to be pierced with like a hypodermic needle. By now, those that rubber is so old, I, I don't know if that would even uh, withstand being pierced without just tearing right off. <laughs> yes. so. It's true. And uh, I even tried. I went as far as taking those cartridges to uh, ink refill places in town here. And uh, you should see the strange looks I got. Oh, yeah. They didn't want to mess with them. Oh, they, they had no idea. A lot of times those kind of places are not be as technical as you think they are. They're more kind of a plug and play what they can get out of the new catalog sort of thing, but not necessarily good on actual engineering solutions. <laughs> right. Yeah, I learned that. So there is um, there's a, a printer on eBay right now that's called the Okadata Okamate 20 color printer. And I did a little research on this. Um, and so I guess this printer was available with that name, but specific for a number of machines. And I guess it actually had um, kind of a, a module that plugged in and out for the interface. And so they'd have specific cabling or whatever for different machines, like the VIC-20 or, or, or Apple II or whatever. This one is for the TRS-80 microcolor computer, which, of course, means it has a serial cable and so should plug into the, the Coco as well. If you have the software to drive it, I don't know. It doesn't seem to include a manual. But uh, I did look around, and, and this printer uses a, a technology called thermal wax transfer, which is a bit different from most, you know, printers it's not an inkjet or whatever it's literally melting wax onto the paper <laughs> kind of like melting crayons onto your paper well, that sounds and cool. I, did, I did find a, a source i think that claimed to be it and i, I can't vouch for it because of course i didn't buy it um but occasionally you can find sort of interesting technology like that you might be able to find um uh, ribbons or whatever you call that for that <laughs> that sort of machine but i don't know I guess the real question is, what use is it? What, what are you going to do with it, with a printer like that? Are you going to hook it to the Cocoa? Or are you going to hook it to a modern machine? Uh, are you going to just set it over in the corner to help it hold down papers when the wind blows? Uh, <laughs> See, for, for myself, I would like to use a printer on the Cocoa. And, uh, you know, one of its kind, like a, uh, one that works natively. Yeah? So you're going to draw uh, pictures or something? Or? Well, you know, you print spreadsheets. You can do uh, word processing. Yeah. Possible. Would you any word processing on the cocoa these days? 
Uh, yeah, that's a good question. I would <laughs> like to try to do some uh, spreadsheets on it. I think that'd be kind of cool. Yeah, well, kind of cool. Uh, it's sort of a, I, that starts to fall in the category of writing software on the Cocoa with old tools kind of thing where it's like, well, that's neat, but I, I probably wouldn't do it <laughs> because, you know, there's just better tools for the jobs these days, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think it's um, just always the, the part of, you know, trying to find another use to use uh, the old computer, right? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, what about kind of alternative uses you know, so like you see these people you see on YouTube where people take a don't dot matrix printer or something and they'll they'll run it backwards and forwards and whatever so that you can make music with them. You imagine yeah. doing something like that? I, I saw that. It's that's pretty interesting. It's like what a lot of people do with the floppy drives. Yeah, you can do that too. But I don't know. I don't know how much money that's worth and how much printer space that's worth to do that. Yeah, um, hearing the Doom theme song playing off of a dot matrix printer. <laughs> It would be hilarious. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'd like to see somebody do that and bring it to Cocoa Fest. Hint, hint. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I have thought, you know, if if you run any kind of computer infrastructure that that's around your house, whether it's home automation or if you have some kind of web web facing service, uh, you know, you're selling books out of your basement or something like that. That you know, you could use an old dot matrix printer as for uh, for logging or something like that. It makes some sense. I think dot matrix printers are still probably the cheapest form of printing, uh, which is why they still use them at the airports. <laughs> They're great for a carbon copy too. Yeah, they work for carbon copy. Uh, I did buy recently a couple of rolls of thermal printer P10. I found that Glenn uh, VDB was uh, selling. So those arrived and they look usable. I haven't actually put them in the in, in, into the TP10 yet, but I always thought that might make for a nice project. That might be a cool project. Would be uh, you know if you had some sort of image capture or whatever, or just a printer, or just a picture you could load onto the Cocoa and then drive the printer with it. And there's probably software already to do that. But if you wanted to write your own, it might be a cool thing to do. Of course, that one's not color, but you could do that on the CGP uh, 220. Um, I have thought that, you know, we're talking about the TP or um, the CGP 115 earlier, you know, which is a plotter. I have always thought that those would be cool to do something with. Either that one or there's a there's a big flatbed plotters from Tan from Tandy that you see pop up on eBay once in a while. Although I bet those are impossible to find to <laughs> plotter pins for the, the DL logo that's available for OS nine. Mm -hmm. uh, apparently it supports uh, writing a uh, plug-in modules for, for outputting, for controlling the codes uh, or for when you, you write your logo stuff and it'll design for like driving little turtle robots or whatever. But I've always thought it might be a cool thing to, to hook that up to like a plotter. And so you could write your logo program and then hook up your CGP uh, 115 and see the plot output that way. So there's a cool project for somebody to do. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> you mentioned the, the TP10. I've always been uh, always been impressed with that printer as well. Have you ever hooked that up to your Coco? Uh, I'm not sure I've ever had it hooked up. It's a neat little printer. Yeah. You ever do anything with yours? No, I don't have one. Oh no, <laughs> not a TP10. Every time I see one come up on eBay, I keep uh, I get the itch to uh, put a bid in, but. Well, um, yeah, so I guess the jury is sort of still out then on uh, 
uh, the printers, you know, it's like, well, you can do some cool stuff with them. It probably the usefulness probably ranks slightly below that of a floppy drive, uh, <laughs> unless you're pressing them into some sort of unusual use, like as a logging printer or something like that. Right. Uh, it but, could but be fun to do, do something with some of them, depending on what your definition of fun is. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, I think. But the roadblock is is got to find uh, the ink form. Have you ever tried to re-ink a printer uh, ribbon? I looked into it, and actually, I might uh, I might go down that avenue. I, I picked up a DMP-105 off of uh, Boise Pete, actually, and uh, it's an excellent shape. He had me at the dust cover, and, um, you know, came with that, so I, I bought it off him. And then it, I didn't realize, I wasn't thinking it through, that, hey, wait a second, I can't get ribbons for this thing. <laughs> so yeah. on, online, some people are talking about you can take the cartridge apart and actually put get a ribbon from another printer and wind it in. Yeah. But I'm thinking that's a messy job. It probably is messy. I don't know. It might be the best option. It's probably no messier than trying to take the ribbon and slide it through an ink pad or something like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've heard that you can take WD-40 and spray it on the, the dried up ribbons and, and get some use out of them that way. Yeah, I heard uh, that too. I'm leery though. It sounds a little messy and, and not super high quality printing to me, but. Right. I guess if you were worried about super high quality printing, you probably wouldn't be using a 30 old, 30 year old printer anyway. <laughs> and then uh, the other problem uh, is, is you have the opposite effect. If you want to use a new printer on a Coco, it just doesn't have the power to drive it. Yeah, that can be a problem. Um, I think it kind of depends. You know, if you get uh, some of the higher end printers, they can accept um, uh, PCL or a postscript. Coco probably can't generate much postscript, but I think you can generate PCL in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and PCL, I think, defaults to taking plain text as well. So if, a, if you have a printer in PCL mode and just send it plain text, it ought to print it. That's good to know. I'm not 100% sure there, but, but I think so. And so um, then you still have the thing of how do you get it there. Uh, it used to be you could buy them, and they'd at least the, the modern printers would at least have an old style Centronics parallel port on them. Right. Uh, which you could get the uh, serial to parallel adapters like the blue streak or whatever for the Coco. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, the, the new printers don't even have those. Uh, so I'm not sure what you do in that case. I think you'd have to, at that point, break down to, uh, to having a, a, some kind of modern machine uh, as a, uh, as a go between maybe a Raspberry Pi or maybe just your regular PC running drive wire or something like that. Which is kind of where we are today then, like Robert Galt's uh, printing. Uh, exactly. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess that's probably it then. I'm not sure what else to say about the what about printers. Uh, what about printers? Uh, so, well, I guess it depends. <laughs> sort of the answer there, right? You know, another cool fact with the CGP220 is uh, I just recently learned was it last year at Coco Fest or maybe the year before Coco Fest when uh, me and Jim O'Keefe took one apart? They have a 6809 processor in them. Yep, that is true. Like, how cool is that? I mean, that's a lot of engineering that went into that. Like, no wonder those printers were expensive. Yeah, that's true. It is kind of funny to think back in those days, you'd have peripherals like that and printers and probably modems and stuff like that that had processors that were essentially the same or at least in the running to be the same as uh, the processors on the computers connected to them. Nowadays, you might still get that on some things like some of the higher-end printers or whatever, but uh, 
a lot of stuff. There's practically nothing, <laughs> or at least compared to the to the uh, CPU in your PC, the CPUs at the other end of a cable are, are practically nothing. Oh yeah, it's just a tiny little circuit board, and there's barely anything there. Yeah. Anyway, will we beat this one to death, or is there uh, more to say? I think that's uh, I think that's a wrap. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's more to be said from somewhere. Uh, and that is why we have the feedback segment. So if you have a good use for printers, for retro printers, uh, or if you think collecting retro uh, printers is the dumbest thing ever or anything in between and you've got something to say, we would love to hear it. Please send us some feedback. All right. Well, that's the end of this discussion. Uh, we can take a break and probably be back with some technical discussions and uh, maybe a games review and Take care. Hey, Coco Crew. Original Gamer Stevie Stroh here. And I want to wish you both a very happy and prosperous new year. And I hope the Coco Crew podcast continues to thrive in 2016. I'm extremely thankful for a lot of events towards the end of 2015, including meeting the color computer community, winning a fully loaded Neil Blanchard original color computer three off of eBay, and also playing Christmas Rush with my daughter, which we really appreciated. So thanks so much, guys, for both the Coco Crew podcast and the Coco Crew community. Long live the Coco. All right. Welcome back. This is John, and I'm going to talk you through a little tech segment here. I'm going to try to quickly cover uh, the 6551 based peripherals that were common <laughs> for the Coco and maybe a little extra. So, yeah, we're going to talk about uh, a peripheral this time. So, uh, we've covered all the Maybe maybe not all, but we'll cover quite a bit of architectural bits on the Coco uh, 1, 2, and 3 now. And, of course, the Dragon along with it to some degree. And uh, so now we're going to have to start talking about some of the common peripherals. And so I figured we'd start with uh, the Deluxe RS-232 pack, which seems to be seems to continue to be relatively sought after, probably because... It actually is one of the more useful things to have, um, depending on how you define useful <laughs> and what you're trying to do with your Coco. Um, but serial ports, uh, despite having largely disappeared from normal PCs, they are still relatively available through USB adapters. Um, and you can do cool things over serial ports, uh, especially when it comes to remote development and that sort of thing. Anyway, people still seem to want these devices. But so anyway, we're going to talk about the RS-232 pack and probably cover a bit about the Direct Connect modem pack, which it turns out is kind of a relative, and uh, maybe throw in a few other bits here and there. Let's get started. Uh, so the Deluxe RS-232 pack and the, the uh, Direct Connect modem pack, uh, both are based around the MOS Technologies 6551 uh ACIA, which is what uh, Advanced Communications Interface Adapter. Um, basically, uh, in, in Intel parlance, it would be called a UART. Uh, maybe that's a more generic term for uh, a universal asynchronous receiver transmitter. Yeah, and maybe that's not any more clear than ACIA, but it seems to be the more common term. Anyway, it's just a chip that is essentially a parallel to serial interface for transmitting data between computers. And uh, this particular one uh, was relatively common, uh, f commonly used uh, back in the day and even maybe to some degree continues to be a commonly used uh, uh, <laughs> depending on who's doing the using. 
certainly has had a long life uh, in both originally in small computer systems and then later in uh, embedded systems uh, where serial communications continue to be uh, a strong uh, uh, competitor or whatever <laughs> until relatively recent times and perhaps even continues. Anyway, as I said, the uh, 6551 uh, ACIA was a product of MOS Technologies, which was... Uh, I guess it was acquired by Commodore pretty early on. Uh, certainly was part of Commodore for some time. The 6551 was, I guess, intended as basically a companion chip for the 6502 microprocessor. Uh, 6502, of course, was the uh, the nearly ubiquitous processor in the 80s. It was in the Commodore PET and the Apple II and the, the Commodore 64 and VIC-20 and... Uh, uh, any number of other machines of the era. Now, not all of those had 60, uh, 6551s in them. Uh, we'll go on that uh, just a minute. Anyway, so this uh, serial port chip from Moss Technologies uh, sort of competed with a chip from Motorola called the uh, the Motorola 6850, which was similar in some ways. Certainly had similar capabilities. Uh, the 6551, I think, was a little more flexible uh, in terms of um, the clocking uh, both of them allowed you to to have a certain number of or a certain amount of flexibility in in uh, applying clock divisors to an input clock a single input clock but the 6850 really only had three divisions uh, uh, divided by well, I guess by one and then by 16 and by 64 so that's really only by two I guess and then but the 6551 could divide by it had 15 different settings for all the standard uh, uh, serial clock rates uh, off of a common crystal frequency, which I don't have right at my fingertips. Anyway, the 6551 could generate a number of common uh, baud rates from a single clock uh, input, whereas the 6850 basically needed uh, a, a more exact clock input to match. Uh, either the baud rate you're trying to reach or some fixed multiple of it. So I imagine that is part of why the 6551 seems to have been a lot more um, common. Although of note, the 6850 seems to be more commonly used for MIDI interfaces. That's uh, the musical device interface or whatever. Uh, and in fact, the Coco MIDI pack, I think, is based around the 6850. So, go figure. <laughs> anyway, it's a popular chip. It had a number of uh, other serial pliers. I, I noted that there are Sonertech and Rockwell 6551 chips out in the in the world. There might be some others. Uh, Sonertech and Rockwell were also second sources for the 6502, and, and so it's probably all kind of a package deal for cross-licensing, whatever. As for usage, like I said, the 6551 was used in the Commodore PET. Uh, it is the chip in the Apple II's uh, Super Serial card, and uh, probably any number of other uh serial ports of the era, especially ones that were connected to either Motorola or MOS CPUs. <laughs> it's almost a safe bet that most of them are using 6551s. It just was very common. As for usage related to the Coco or the Dragon, uh, as I said, it was used in the Deluxe RS-232 pack. It also is the serial port component of the 
direct connect modem pack. You know, the other half of that, of course, being the modem chip. There is a 6551 in uh, inside the Dragon 64 uh, or in the Tano Dragon, which basically is a Dragon 64. Also notable is uh, a few years back, Roger Taylor had a couple of designs. He had a Bluetooth um, communications pack and uh, I think he had uh, one that was a USB um, storage communicate or storage pack. Uh, I forget exactly what he called them, but uh, underneath, at least the the Bluetooth one and I think the USB one were essentially clones of the uh, Deluxe RS232 pack. And so, uh, for example, I've got one of the Bluetooth. I've got his Bluetooth uh, pack. And I run software for it that uh, actually runs equally well on the <laughs> Deluxe RS-232 pack. I use that as part of my development environment. Uh, so, <laughs> anyway, um, sometimes you can do clever things by reusing a design. Features of the chip, basically there's four registers. There's a, a data register, so read and write. There's a status register, to uh, you read that and to tell if there's uh, data available to read or if the transmit uh, is open for you to write. A few other things like uh, the uh, flow control uh, status, that sort of thing. And then there's a command register and a control register. Not sure, I guess they just needed different names because there's two different registers. <laughs> I'm not really sure why one's command, one's control, but you know, the command register sets up um, things like um, you know whether to respond to data terminal ready, uh, when to interrupt uh, if you receive, whether or not to interrupt when you receive something, you set up your parity settings, um, and stuff like that. The control register has the stop bits and the word length, and that's where you select your your uh, clock for driving your baud rate. Uh, your, so anyway, so there's just four bits for controlling the hardware, or four registers for controlling the hardware. Uh, as I mentioned, the, the 6551 has uh, a number of settings related to uh, turning the clock input into a baud rate, something like 15 values, and then there's a, you know, so there's 15 values that cover uh, everything from as low as 50 baud, 75, 110, 135, 150, 300, 600, 1200, 1800, 2400, 3600, 4800, 9600, and 19.2. Then there's one that's a 16 times external clock. And I think if you do the math, that will work out to 115,200 um, bits per second. Um, but I think that maybe is a, maybe unreliable, or maybe there's some <laughs> some. Uh, uh, speculation about that. I know Roger Taylor, I think, was an advocate that that would work in, in many cases. Um, there's some bugs uh, that are common with the 6551 hardware, and I think maybe that trips people up, so it makes those uh, makes that baud rate not as reliable. Uh, so let's talk about the bugs. So there is a bug with the, the uh, CTS signal, that's the, the clear to send, uh, and so CTS is used uh, for flow control, hardware flow control, and paired with the RTS or request to send signal. And it's basically supposed to be like two flags to say I'm, you know, and how it's how the two sides negotiate who can send and who can't, or, or whether or not you can send across. And the problem is, uh, as the way most people interpret it, um, 
the receiving side can drop the CTS to say, okay, I'm full now or I will be full when you get done. But it's not necessarily, or at least most people don't seem to intend it uh to mean stop immediately. <laughs> and the problem being that the 6551 sees it the other way, so as soon as he sees CTS, his transmitter will stop, even if he's in the middle of transmitting a, a byte. And so, since serial, uh, asynchronous serial communication sort of depends on um, sending out a, a bits over a specified period of time, uh, this is going to result in what's called a framing error. Basically, it means that the receiving side expects to see a stop bit. It doesn't get one, and <laughs> and basically things are screwed up for a while. You know, there's there's not really a software workaround for that. Uh, it just sort of is how the hardware works or doesn't work. Sockmaster has an article on his website um, that uh, describes the fix that he did that basically removes the CTS signal from going to the 6551 and then he reroutes it and regenerates it uh, himself. Uh, I haven't read the article in a while so it's not fresh in my mind but you can basically, it's a hardware bug that you can work around with a hardware fix <laughs> but you can't really work around it in software at least not reliably or no way that I'm aware of. I have seen many places assert that uh, if you get the CMOS version of the 6551, so that's a 65C51, that that fixed the CTS bug. So uh, you might consider, if you are worried about that, or if you want to use it at higher speeds, that, that you get the 65C51 chip and see if that works. But you still may want to be a little wary, because also, while doing a little research, I found that there's a uh, transmit data register empty um, uh, bug where there's a flag in the status bit to say the transmit data register is, is empty or, or ready to uh, receive data but it's always stuck on so that it always looks like it's ready even when it's not and so it can, you can overflow the transmit queue. Um, that report I saw says it was from October of 2013 so not that long ago said that Western Digital was aware of the problem and we're working on it uh, you know, the Western Digital folks, um, I'm sorry, if you're not familiar, Western Digital is kind of the heir to MOS technologies, and they're still building most of these, uh, or a lot of these 65XX-related uh, parts, like the 6502 and 65816 and that sort of thing, uh, including the 6551, uh, uh, apparently, and, and maybe the 6522, uh, which is the VIA. Well, we haven't really talked about that because Cocoa doesn't use it. But <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, those guys are still active and they're still making some changes and doing some stuff. Uh, so I don't know. Maybe if you get a brand new 2016 65C51, maybe the transmit data register empty bit, it works correctly there. I don't know. Um, maybe that bug showed up later. So maybe if you still go with a 2009 or 2010 version, maybe it's going to work. I don't know, your mileage may vary, but <laughs> it's possible you can get a version of the 6551 that doesn't have the CTS bug, um, but uh, it might have other bugs. So there you go. Anyway, so moving on, I thought I'd talk a little bit about the software that comes with these devices. So on the Deluxe RS-232 pack, uh, the the built-in software, which you uh, which it's on ROM, but it does not auto-start. You have to do an exec of... Uh, uh, what 49152 or or I use the the hexadecimal and uh, ampersand H C O O O yeah exec 49152. 
that'll to start the software. Uh, the software that runs, if you've ever run the Color Compact software, which is serial communication software that runs over the the Bitbanger port, the software on the Deluxe RS232 pack seems almost identical. Uh, I would not be surprised if it literally is identical except for the serial port handling routines. It certainly has the same menus, the same options, is operated in the same way. Anyway, um, it's pretty rudimentary. You start off with a, a menu screen that lets you change serial settings like uh, 7 bits versus 8 bits or uh, no parity or even or odd parity or how many stop bits, that sort of thing. Uh, and let you check check off what kind of modem you're using because this is how old the software is. It goes back to the days where you had some modems could auto dial and some couldn't. I remember back as a kid, I actually used the Color Compact software with a, a modem that I had to dial the phone myself and wait for the devil's screech. You know, <laughs> and then I'd have to flip the switch to turn the modem on. Um, so. Um, that was with the, the, the Bitbanger, but if I was using the the uh, Deluxe RS-232 pack, I would have had to do the same thing, apparently. Anyway, the software has um, basic terminal functionality, so you can connect and type at one keyboard and see it at the other side. You know, you could do that if you want to just chat with your friends, if you're <laughs> that kind of a, a, a geeky person with a geeky friend. Or if you wanted to connect to, say, CopyServe or something like that. Uh, and uh, check your email or whatever. So, so like I said, there was basic terminal net and terminal functionality. There were possibilities for transferring files, but it's a little different. It's a little weird. It's not like in later days when you could uh, uh, hook up and run Zmodem or something like that. There really weren't any protocols involved here. <laughs> uh, so basically, you you set it up and you could do either basic or machine language. Um, but either way, I think it basically just sent raw bytes of data, and the only difference was for, in BASIC, I think it just sent ASCII code for the source of your BASIC program, and in machine language, it just sent the actual bytes from memory for your block of memory that you said was your machine language program. But no translation, no protocols, no error checking, no nothing. It's bare bones. It does work. I have used it. I did some initial development when I started back developing for the Coco before I had a good development environment set up. I was able to transfer machine language programs that way. So um, if you have an RS-232 pack and you're desperate for a way to get machine language uh, code onto your Coco, well there you go. Okay, one one last thing in the Deluxe RS-232 packs is it has uh, support for what it calls a store and forward mode. And basically this was a way to fill a buffer on your machine, either fill it up and then connect and transmit it out automatically, uh, or vice versa, connect and then fill a buffer with like news or information or whatever. Uh, sort of like an even simpler version of file transfer, <laughs> or it's more like filling up the, the modem log uh, on some terminal software. But, uh, you know, anyway, it was a kind of a remnant of the day when uh, telephone calls were pretty expensive and uh, you connect up to CopyServe and download the latest news and then disconnect and you could read it uh, uh, on your own. In fact, I imagine that's quite similar to how it was to use the, uh, I want to say, the, the AgVision terminals <laughs> or the, uh, um, you know, the, the, uh, the equivalent, I can't think of what they're called now. <laughs> just saw them on uh, eBay recently, but the um, 
the the serial data terminals that look like an old Coco. Um, maybe Neil can pop in and remind me of what they were called <laughs> when he edits this. I believe what you're thinking of is the TRS-80 Videotex terminal. All right, so moving on. So I thought that the Direct Connect modem software was was going to be identical to what's on the Deluxe RS-232 pack, which of course is essentially identical to the Color Compact. But just to be sure, I took a Direct Connect modem and plugged it into a Coco here, and the software is actually quite different, or at least it looks quite a bit different. It appears, uh, unfortunately I have some documentation I was reading through it, it looks like there's sort of better terminal support so you can do a few more things or type a few more kinds of characters or whatever. There actually is support for the the true lowercase modes in the lower, later Cocos. The software does have support for some file transfers uh, but it appears to be limited to transferring uh, basic programs as ASCII source files or just not even a file, just as ASCII text in the transfer. Although it does claim to have X modem support, I'm not really sure why you need it, but I guess if you're the other side talks X modem, maybe that's why you need it. <laughs> um, there is printer support. Oh, I should say the Deluxe RS-232 pack did support the printer, but only in the store and forward mode. So you could store and forward and then dump stuff to a printer. Um, the Direct Connect modem does seem to have printer support uh, that um, looks like you can stream stuff out to the printer, so while it's going to the screen, it can go to the printer. Maybe the Deluxe RS-232 pack could do that, too. I'm not sure. I don't know. It looks like the D D Direct Connect modem software has a little bit better printer support. I think you can at least ch change baud rates and stuff for the printer. I don't know. The fact is that the 300 baud modem attached to the Direct Connect modem is essentially useless these days, so it may, <laughs> may not really matter what the software can do unless you're just a really retro kind of person that gets off on the notion of connecting up two machines over the modem these days. So anyway, that's that's the software that comes with them. Doesn't do a lot, kind of enough to make them do something. It's probably reasonably useful back in the day. I know I used the Color Compact on a different modem connected to the Bitbanger and thought it was okay software, not great, but it was reasonably useful. Uh, so the stuff on the Deluxe RS-232 pack is probably similarly okay, not great, but kind of useful. I think probably any other software that exists for the Coco that's terminal software, whether it's Mickey Term or Greggy Term or whatever else is out there, those are probably much, much, much better. Uh, so uh, that's probably a better way to make use of, of your serial ports uh, if you want to use it for any of the kind of standard purposes. Uh, OS 9 does come with drivers for, uh, I think supports both of these, um, even though uh, they're basically, they're very similar hardware, uh, but they are addressed at slightly different addresses, so you can plug both of them in at the same time to like a multi-pack or something like that, and they should both work. Uh, OS 9 can support that. But all there is to say, like I said, there, um, there is one neat hack uh, that's pretty well documented. Let me see if I can find a reference here. I'll find it. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's not that hard to find. I just can't seem to find it while I'm trying to talk. There is a relatively simple hack, in the truest sense of the word hack, um, that can convert uh, the Direct Connect modem into the equivalent of a Deluxe RS-232 pack. And in that, you literally take the, the circuit board out of the, the modem pack and cut half of it off. <laughs> Basically, you cut the modem half off, 
you solder a couple of jumpers between the exposed traces that are left there to kind of reconnect them for power and ground and that sort of thing. And then you add another little circuit board that takes the, the signals coming off of the, the 6551 that are basically TTL level digital signals, you know, 5 volts, 0 to 5 volts, and converts them to the plus or minus 12 volts uh, or something closer to that at least uh, that are required for RS-232 signaling. Um, and so uh, it's a neat little hack. I've always thought it'd be cool to do. Haven't quite gotten around to doing it. Um, but, you know, if you're looking for a neat hack to do in a Cocoa, that might be a cool thing to do, is to hack it into, uh, hack your direct connect modem into the equivalent of the Deluxe RS-232 pack, and then, then uh, who knows what else you can do. And again, I think I mentioned this earlier, um, but if you have a Dragon 64 or a Tano Dragon, they do have a 6551 on the motherboard, this is the built-in serial port they have instead of the Bitbanger. So any software that you have that you might make use of with the Deluxe RS-232 pack, it should be at least adaptable to run on, uh, the serial port that's on the Dragon. Uh, I've got uh, the software I use for uh, running a, a, a development uh, uh, monitor, debugger, or whatever on the uh, Direct Connect modem pack equivalent uh, that I mentioned earlier, the Bluetooth uh, pack from Roger Taylor. Uh, I've been meaning to get that ported over to the Dragon and uh, see if I can get that out for public consumption. Haven't got there yet, but feel free to nag me and send me some feedback saying how desperately you need that, and uh, I'll uh, continue to work on it. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's probably plenty said, but there's not a lot more to say about the um, Deluxe RS-232 pack or the Direct Connect modem pack. Um, it really is just, it's basically just this uh, 6551 ACIA chip, just on a board and with just enough circuitry to make it actually useful and and that's a truth and in, in sort of in both the cases the, the deluxe rs232 pack especially and then the modem pack is just that with a, a modem chip on the end of it it does a lot, enable a lot of functionality uh, being able to do serial port transfers um, people talked over serial ports for a long time, still do. Uh, there's a lot of cool stuff you can do with it. It's, a, it's probably the simplest way to get two machines to communicate. So, um, you know, there's lots of projects you can do that involve that sort of communication. Uh, you can make it talk to, uh, you know, your PC or to an Arduino or whatever else. So, uh, if you're into any of that, you definitely should want to get one of these <laughs> packs for your Coco. Uh, so there, I've blown it again. We're going to make all, all the eBay prices go through the roof. <laughs> That's probably enough. I've talked long enough. So uh, I hope you've enjoyed this technical segment. Uh, I know it went a little fast. I don't think it went too deep this time. Um, maybe I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, send me some feedback. Let me know uh, what you think. If I've left anything else, uh, if I've left anything out, or if you have any questions, again, send us some feedback and uh, let us know. And that's just it. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed the segment. And uh, happy cocoaing, uh, cocoa forever, uh, whatever else. <laughs> All right, we'll see you at Cocoa Fest. Get ready, player one. Get ready, player two. Welcome back to the Games Corner. Wow, has it been a month already? Aren't we still playing Farfall? Well, I certainly am. As I mentioned before, the cartridge lives in slot 1 on my multi-pack. 
Well, on this episode, I will be reviewing another one of my favorite Color Computer 1 and 2 games from back in the day. This game is called Dragon Slayer. This game was made in 1984 and coded by a guy named Olaf Schroeder? Schroeder? Hope I pronounced his name right. And published by the famous Tom Mix software label that brought many of great games to the color computer. Dragon Slayer required a color computer 1 or 2 with 32K RAM and disk drive. And of course the floppy disk was also heavily copy protected. Dragon Slayer is a platform adventure style game. It has a whopping 160 screens to complete. It breaks down to 16 screens per level and a total of 10 levels. Why I like this game is it requires the player to figure out puzzles and obstacles in each screen. To clear a screen you need to collect objects and sometimes these objects might be on a previous screen. Some of the objects you have to get are planks to build a bridge, ropes to hook onto hooks for climbing up or down a platform, boots to cross tall grass, buckets to get water for growing magic vines, and much more. Every screen is a new challenge and requires a player to really think. My sister and I spent many hours playing this game when we got our first Coco. Obviously the object of this game is to complete all 160 screens and slay the dragon. I've never come close to finishing this game, but have made it about halfway. It's definitely a lot harder than it looks. If anyone has finished this game, I'd really like to hear from you. Please drop me a line. This game is one of the bigger 32K games for the Color Computer 1 and 2 platform, and I always thought the graphics were nice on it. They even hold up well today as I sit and play this game for my review on it. On a side note, speaking of graphics, there was a guy named Jason Law that used to be involved in the Color Computer community a few years back and he was coding a brand new Color Computer 3 version of this game to take advantage of the 16 color RGB graphics. He was looking for a working copy of this game that wasn't broken like the image that was floating around on the web at the time. Apparently it has corrupt graphics in the later levels. He needed a full working version so he could draw and create all the levels for his new version in true exact form. So I sent him my floppy disk of this game in the mail. Well from what I can tell he had it almost all finished and then he just seemed to have disappeared from the community. A real shame if you ask me. I was looking forward to a Color Computer 3 release of this game. Well, it just gives us another excuse to use our Color Computer 1 or 2 for this game. Hope I encourage you to give this game a whirl. If you don't have it, you can find it on the Coco Archive website. We'll be sure to put the link in the show notes. Well, until next month, happy Coco Gaming. Well, it's that time again. We have reached the end of Episode 9. We hope you enjoyed the show. I would like to thank my host, John Linville, for providing the 6551 Deluxe RS-232 Pack Tech segment. I found this segment extra interesting as I once ran a BBS back in the day. We also would like to thank all of you for listening. You are the most important part of the show. Again, if we didn't have you tuning in, there'd be no point in making this podcast. Stay tuned for next month's show. Oh, and did we forget to mention? Only two more months until Coco Fest. See you all there. <laughs>